Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Secrets of New York. I'm Michelle Young, and I'm the founder of Untap New York, an online magazine about New York City's secrets and hidden gems. I wear a few other hats, too, as a professor of architecture at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation, where I teach a class all about New York City, and I also teach at the Craig Newmark School of Journalism at CUNY, the City University of New York. I founded Untap New York in 2009 with a simple idea. Rediscover your city. We unearth history that's lost to time, and we love debunking myths. We show not only what's hidden beneath the surface, but also the mundane yet fascinating things you might miss every day. You can check out many new discoveries daily on untappnewyork.com or access New York City's most off-limits places in person or virtually by joining us on a tour or becoming an Untap New York insider. More than a decade after the launch of Untap New York, I've learned that the secrets of New York are truly limitless, and there are still new discoveries to be made in this great city every day. The podcast Secrets of New York will feature bite-sized episodes you can consume quickly to get your fix of New York City secrets. It will be full of all the things you've ever wondered about New York, like why does steam come out of the ground? Do alligators live in the subway? How does a water tower work? I and the Untap New York team will impart our knowledge interview experts, and in many cases, literally go behind the scenes. If we had to name our most valuable skill, it's getting into places we aren't supposed to be in, and we'll be bringing you with us. For the very first episode of Secrets of New York, I'm going to share with you my favorite New York City secret of all time. It is literally the one amazing fact that made me start Untap New York. It made me think, if I didn't know about that, what else don't I know? So without further ado, drumroll please... That secret that blew me away was that New York City once had a pneumatic tube mail system that used to whisk mail underground at 30 miles per hour. Crazy, right? We'll be joined in this episode by a curator at the Smithsonian National Postal Museum, the former head of content at the science magazine Futurism, and by playwright, historian, and tour guide extraordinaire Justin Rivers, Untapped New York's chief experience officer. So today, I'd like to bring you back to the year 1897, when the pneumatic tube mail system was installed in New York City. Imagine an underground world where mail was zipping around in tubes beneath the incredibly crowded and busy New York City streets. That's what was happening for over half a century, four to six feet below street level. The route was about the length of a marathon, connecting two dozen post offices going from downtown Manhattan to Harlem and back down, with crosstown tubes between the main post office at 34th Street and Grand Central. Not limited to the island of Manhattan, there was a pneumatic mail stop in Brooklyn, and allegedly one in the Bronx, whose workers would send subway sandwiches all the way to their downtown friends. Taking the idea of express mail to its fastest possible conclusion, regular mail would often arrive same day. It only took four minutes to send mail from Grand Central to the main post office on 34th Street. From the main post office, it would take just 16 minutes to get down to Wall Street. At the peak of the system, about one-third of all first-class letters went through these tubes. And in the 1950s, as the system was coming to a close, it still carried 55% of all New York City mail. That was the 1950s. The story of New York City's pneumatic tubes is part of the country's era of scientific discovery. My favorite part is what our forefathers sent as tests through the system. The first tube contained a Bible, a flag, and a copy of the Constitution. The second contained an imitation peach in honor of New York Senator Chauncey Depew, who was fondly known as the Peach. And a third carrier had a black cat in it, for reasons we still don't know today. 
So how does a pneumatic system work? Using power from old-school electric motors made by the likes of General Electric and Westinghouse, air pressure was created within the system by rotary blowers and air compressors. According to Robert A. Cohen, who wrote the article The Pneumatic Mail Tubes, New York's Hidden Highway and Its Development, the canisters could go as fast as 100 miles per hour, but were kept at around 30 miles per hour due to the many turns. That's kind of like the issue with Amtrak's Acela train. The train can go much faster than the infrastructure it runs on. The mail canisters would shoot out of a tube into the postal stations and land on top of a tray, picked up by a postal operator. These operators were known as rocketeers. How awesome is that? Each canister was labeled on the outside with its destination, but all the canisters had to come out at each station. There was no express track, so to speak. So if a canister was destined for another station, it would be sent back again into the tubes and on its way. Pneumatic technology was not brand new when the pneumatic mail system went into operation. In fact, a clandestine subway system was built under New York City streets by an enterprising young inventor in 1870, decades before the first subway line opened in New York City. I asked Justin Rivers, who originated Untapped New York's popular subway tour, and our chief experience officer who knows just about everything about New York City and the subway. Well, one of the things I really love about this pneumatic subway is that even the most seasoned New York uh, transit goer does not know about it. And it's very New York in the fact that it was a guerrilla project literally done uh, in the middle of the night over the course of 58 days in the late 1860s. So it all starts with a patent officer and scientist by the name of Alfred Eli Beach. And we today actually... uh, still have exposure to something that Beach has given the world, which is Scientific American. Um, it's a magazine that is still on the newsstands today. And he, when he was 18 years old, talk about an overachiever, he began the publication or taking over the lead publication of the magazine. He did not found it. The founder uh, founded it and then a year later got tired of it and Beach took it over. But Beach was a scientist. He was a tinkerer. He also came from New England money. So he had a lot of money to play with a lot of his experiments. And he realized city streets were very crowded, very congested, very dirty, and people couldn't move very easily. So he had envisioned underground rapid transit because he knew London was doing it. So London system officially comes online 1870, but by 1863, there was already London underground moving and he wanted New York to get there. So what he tries to do is convince the city of an underground rapid system But they weren't buying it because at the time the city was run by a very corrupt political machine known as Tammany Hall. And a lot of New Yorkers may know the figure of William Marcy Tweed or otherwise known as William Boss Tweed. And he uh, did not get involved in projects he couldn't take a very large cut of. And Alfred Eli Beach did something very smart since he was a patent officer. He actually took out a patent on pneumatic technology Uh, which he told Tweed was for mail tubes. But Tweed knew what he wanted to do with it, which was he wanted to take it underground and create a subway system with it. So how exactly did Beach build it? It's probably hard for New Yorkers to imagine today that such a large piece of infrastructure could be built secretly. So in the cover of night, he rented the ground level and basement level of a place called Devlin's Mail Department Stores for men's clothing. It is 258 Broadway. And he got guys in the middle of the night for 58 nights with pickaxes and shovels. He ordered a shield 
from Europe sent over to hold up Broadway because they tunneled under Broadway from Murray to Warren Street, created the first subway tube um, in New York at the time. And uh, then he created this very large fan blower. He built the station, very ornate looking station under 258 Broadway. Uh, had it look like a very, very posh parlor. Um, and then he opened it up to public consumption. He opened it up uh, February 26th, 1870, 2 p.m. He ran uh, every day from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. He actually had a catered lunch in the station when people came down. They paid 25 cents to ride this train. Uh, they got lunch and there was a grand piano player playing. Uh, at all times to add ambiance. That's amazing. So from what I understand, the train cars in the pneumatic tube subway system might make New Yorkers today a bit jealous. What was neat about the subway car was it was a cylindrical tube that fit right in this uh, 200 and I believe 96 foot track, which again went one city block uh, from Murray to Warren. And uh, basically what happened is it held 22 people. There were couches. There was a nice lamp inside the subway car and uh, Beach would fire up the blower. It would create this pressurized air vacuum that would push the train from the station at Warren to Murray. He'd have a guy standing at the Murray Street end of the tunnel with a top hat and a bell. He'd ring it and say Murray Street like there was any other subway station in, in the country they could go to. <laughs> and then it, he would reverse the fan and the vacuum would suck the car back over to the station. And the whole thing took about 36 seconds um, and, and then they were done. And people paid 25 cents he charged in 1870 for this ride. And that's a lot of money back then. But uh, over 400,000 people did it over the course of a little over a year's time. And it was a big hit. So one of the things we get asked all the time is whether there's anything left. I know. The physical remnants. My guess is no, because that uh, original 258 Broadway burned and was rebuilt uh, in the early 20th century. So most likely not. The only physical piece of remnant would be the shield that Alfred Eli Beach used to hold Broadway up. Uh, apparently, it was gifted to Cornell University. Now, when you reach out to Cornell and ask them, where is the shield? Uh, nobody knows. <laughs> uh, I did get one person to confirm that it was somewhere in their catalog, but nobody knows physically where the shield is. So that would be probably at this point, the only remnant. The car was destroyed uh, by the BMT in the 19-teens. Oh, that's a shame. Could yeah. have been a great item for a trolley museum or oh, totally. transit museum. One thing you need to know about me, I'm really, really obsessed with pneumatic tubes. Over the last 11 years, I've been tracking down where pneumatic technology is still in operation in New York City, and of course, what might be left of the pneumatic mail system specifically. The old Chelsea Post Office has the only known remnant of the pneumatic mail tubes left. It's not in a publicly accessible area, but I was recently taken down into the basement through a cage full of janitorial supplies and into a narrow, brick-lined hallway filled with forgotten office supplies. At the very end was the holy grail for a pneumatic mail tube nerd like me. Six pipes coming out of the wall. The tubes are now blocked off with concrete, 
but Xavier Hernandez, a communications specialist with the U.S. Postal Service, explained to me how the setup might have once been. So he's got the uh, locks and access over here. and then Got it. That's why we have all the So there, there would have been an area here where the, there were workers kind of receiving yeah. the things coming out of these tubes and probably like processing... Probably from here, they would bring it into the main floor. Okay. And then uh, from the main floor, they would distribute it out. So if it needed to, um, if it was like hot mail, we call if it needed to go out, it would get processed right around here. Or uh, if not, it would go upstairs uh, using the elevator we have. Okay. Yeah. Pneumatic technology is also visible elsewhere in New York City. The New York Public Library's main branch used to handle item requests through its pneumatic tube system, and you can still see the bronze tubes today in the Rose Reading Room. If you want to see one in action, B&H Photo and Video uses a more modern pneumatic tube system. When you order an item, it comes up through the tubes to your sales rep, emerging with a whoop sound. The sales guy processes it and sends it back down to the tubes to the cash registers where you pay. To feed my growing obsession with pneumatic mail, last December I headed to Washington, D.C.'s Smithsonian National Postal Museum, where I met with Manda Kowalczyk, an accessions officer at the museum. She pulled all the items in the Postal Museum that are connected to the pneumatic tube mail systems in America. One of them you can see on a regular visit to the museum is the pneumatic tube mail canister. This 24-inch long, 8-inch wide metal canister could carry somewhere between 400 and 600 letters. And, after seeing it, I determined it could definitely have fit a small black cat. The Postal Museum also has several maps of the New York City pneumatic tube system, mostly from the 1930s and 40s. A 1947 map has some fun facts, including the time it took to send mail between the General Post Office and other stations, the number of canisters that went through the system daily, 95,000, the pressure needed, 3 to 8 pounds per inch, and the speed, 5 tube carriers per minute and 30 miles per hour. That year, there was 26.969 miles of two-way pneumatic tubes. It even had the hours of operation. Weekdays from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m., Saturday from 5 a.m. to 10 a.m., and no service on Sundays and legal holidays. I love, love the thought of mail getting shot underground at 5 a.m. to arrive just in time for the beginning of the workday. The map also shows that pneumatic tubes went over the Brooklyn Bridge. Here's Justin Rivers again. So a fact that very few New Yorkers know, I know for a fact, is that pneumatic tubes uh, went across the Brooklyn Bridge over to Brooklyn. And it was one of the few instances where those pneumatic tubes were actually above ground. So the reason why the pneumatic tubes ran uh, under the Brooklyn Bridge was because they were going to the main post office off of uh, what is today Cadman Plaza. The tubes remained under the superstructure of the bridge until they did a massive uh, restoration rebuild, or they called it a rebuild of the Brooklyn Bridge in 1954. And then those tubes were removed. I would really like to see some sort of physical remnant of them. Um, I was actually doing a Brooklyn Bridge tour recently uh, with a group from Tap New York, and we were looking under the uh, the roadway of the bridge and couldn't see anything, but I know that they they were there at one point and removed in the 50s. Your thought is that the bridge, uh, sorry, the, the pneumatic tubes went under the roadway? Yes. So I, my uh, thinking was that the they went under the roadway and then went down with the uh, suspender cables into the anchorage underground. 
Got it's it. probably the only way that they were able to access the underground to go directly into the uh, Cadman Plaza, the main general post office of Brooklyn at the time, which is not that far uh, from the Brooklyn side of the Brooklyn Bridge. We'll be back after a quick break. Have you ever wondered what the band ACDC has to do with the missing town of Dublin, Wisconsin? Or who gets to decide what music plays at the end of the world? Or whether or not the largest unsolved art heist in history was actually a cover for a different crime. Maybe you haven't wondered about these things, but that's okay. On 31, we dive into strange, true, but often lesser-known stories and the interesting theories that surround them. From space to sports, lost media to internet lore, 31 has something for everyone. Find 31 on your favorite podcast platform and dive into the why behind the weird with me, Quinn Lovecraft. 31, the why behind the weird. Marked in red on the map were proposed extensions of the pneumatic tubes. There was one that might have extended the system to Greenwich Village, another to places on the Lower East Side and over to Hamilton Heights. Most tellingly, there is an extension proposed up to the Bronx's Grand Concourse. In the earlier article I mentioned by Robert Cohen, he interviewed a former rocketeer who said the Bronx extension had in fact been completed, and the sandwich substory comes from that very man. Manda also showed me a damaged letter that went through the New York pneumatic tube mail system in 1898. The envelope is lost. The letter is covered in grease from the tubes, and a note that accompanied the damaged letter states that when two canisters were not properly sealed, their contents were dumped into the damp, oily tube. The note went on to explain that the pieces of mail were blown in during the night, pushed out of the tube by more canisters that came through. The letter is slightly torn, but the text is still legible typewritten from Mr. F. N. McClure of the Standard Varnish Company in Long Island City to an address on Broadway. He was following up on an urgent delivery of varnish that came from Flint, Michigan. Manda then told me about a fascinating former department of the Postal Service known as the Dead Letter Office, something she called a whole other wormhole. To follow up, I interviewed Lynn Heidelbaugh, curator at the Smithsonian National Postal Museum. I learned that when a piece of mail was damaged, it could end up in this dead letter office, where men and women were serving as veritable mail detectives, deciphering damaged and lost mail in the hopes of getting it to the intended destination. Hi, Lynn. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, thanks. So first, you have to tell me about your Zoom background. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, the Zoom background is the wrapper of um, the Hope Diamond and uh, the this is the, the packaging that's in the Postal Museum's collection. When the Harry Winston Jeweler um, company sent the Hope Diamond and donated it to the Smithsonian, they sent it by mail. And um, this is the, the brown paper packaging of that. And it's got um, a very small amount of postage on it. And it's mostly the insurance. That's amazing. We did an article uh, earlier this year about the registered uh, post office, mail post office in the diamond district that is oh, pretty much exclusively sending diamonds through the mail and, and gems and such. So first I asked Lynn how often mail would get stuck in the pneumatic tube. Probably not common. <laughs> they, they did keep okay. them um, operating fairly um, well and without too many incidents, but the incidents did end up in the newspapers and um, because the pneumatic tubes were speeding the mail around um, the, the cities. And this was a time at uh, this um, late 19th century, early 20th century, 
where in cities, particularly these larger cities that had pneumatic tubes, there was delivery a couple times a day. Um, and so the pneumatic tubes would help that happen, right, to get that mail moved across a city. And so some people were expecting that mail to arrive in the same day. Um, and so it didn't make the newspaper. Next, Lynn describes some of the most damaged pieces of mail she's ever seen that went through the pneumatic tube system. Yeah, the pieces that we have at the Postal Museum, they're somewhat, um, they're somewhat stained, but I've seen some at the National Archives that are just so darkened that um, and stuck together that, <laughs> that there's no way to really under, to know what, what was in that mail and, and probably what is still inside that envelope. I, I didn't even want to touch it anymore after I've what happened upon a, a folder and box of, of that material. It was still after you know, probably nearly 100 years. It's pretty filthy still. <laughs> <laughs> Which is incredible because um, it's still preserving that incident and that event that um, caused that mail to to be saved and set aside. Of here's um, you know here's what happens when mail goes when the mail system um, gets gets stuck literally gets stuck. <laughs> you can imagine the faces of the workers maybe when it came flying out of the tube. <laughs> oh yeah, that must have been terrifying. But yeah. <laughs> And then, and then the filth that came with it too. <laughs> Imagine. So, how might they have investigated um, and determined where a piece of letter might go? Yeah. So, b- both the men and women were um, investigating the the mail. The, the men were opening the mail, um, which actually was part of the reason why they were uh, said to be entitled to that higher pay, and that they were protecting women in case there was something scandalous in in the mail. But um, what they were looking for is clues to how to get this mail delivered. So can they find the name of who this um, letter belonged to? Uh, and what they were really working with was more the valuable mail items that had money in it, legal documents and so forth. And that was where um, they were supposed to put their time. Uh, other things didn't get as much time and attention. and they they did so not just opening the mail, but of course they would also try to get as many clues from from the wrapper, the envelope or the mail, the wrapper, the the parcel. And they became real experts in the geography of the US. And they had reference books about all of the different street names um, around the the country. And so every Every Elm Street and and uh, every city was listed, and so they were also really great sort of puzzlers out of bad handwriting. Um, but many of um, both the men and women were experts in foreign languages as well, and so there was a, a division of the foreign mail section, um, and it was run by a woman around the turn of the twentieth century, and. Um, was specializing in foreign languages uh, because as the U.S. had um, high immigration numbers uh, around the turn of the 20th century, you have a lot of people writing to and from their home countries, um, as well as a lot of business being conducted through the mail. And so um, you get a lot of different, not just uh, languages on there, but very different handwriting styles. And so the clerks were experts in and deducting um, all the different styles of handwriting and different places and languages and 
where people would just make a common mistake of leaving out um, a name that, you know, they're familiar with, but so why would the post office worker not be familiar with too? And probably abbreviations that are known maybe locally, but not. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Abbreviations that are known, um, the sort of phonetic spellings is, uh, was a common error as well. So, I mean, you can imagine that happens a lot with um, someone not writing in English um, and trying to spell some of the names of American states or cities. The high cost of the pneumatic mail system led to its downfall, and it closed in New York in 1953. But as early as 1907, the Postal Service was lamenting the cost of the system, stating in a Postal Inspector report, quote, This is the most expensive method of mail transportation in use at the present time, and the inspectors very much doubt whether the advantages obtained are commensurate with the heavy expense, end quote. In New York City, the pneumatic mail system was installed and operated privately until July 1, 1942, when the U.S. government took it over. The Postal Service was paying $17,000 per mile per year in 1917 in all the cities the tubes were operating in, which included Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, St. Louis, and New York. That rate increased to $19,500 per mile in the 1930s. That's equivalent to nearly $400,000 per mile in 2020 dollars, which is still far less than the cost of construction of the 2nd Avenue subway, for example, which cost $2.5 billion per mile. Every time a contract had to be renewed, Congress had to approve the spending. So when the budget wasn't approved, a situation we all know from politics today, the pneumatic tube mail system would shut down. From 1901 to 1902, for example, the system shut down nationwide for a year. It would be shut down four more times between 1919 and 1922, but it was resuscitated in New York City in 1922 and in Boston in 1926. There were other weaknesses of the system. Not all mail could go through the tubes, like larger packages. The construction of larger tubes was considered, but never executed. This inability of the system to scale was already being discussed by 1916. The final nail on the coffin came when President Eisenhower appointed a new Postmaster General in 1953, who canceled a contract that would have extended the operation of the remaining pneumatic tube mail systems in the U.S. for another 10 years. Additional trucks were purchased to handle the mail volume, which fit in with the car craze that took over America after the war. Pneumatic technology is still around today, actually, powering the Hyperloop project. The dream is to transport people as fast as 700 miles per hour, making a trip from New York City to Washington, D.C. in just 30 minutes. I spoke with Luke Kingma, former vice president at the science magazine Futurism, where he also served as director of content and head of creative. So Luke, tell me a little bit about the Hyperloop project, because I know that the technology is similar or perhaps the same as uh, pneumatic mail. Yeah, so the Hyperloop was really a response to this sort of timeless issue with high-speed transportation and specifically with high-speed rail, um, which is that there are sort of two things that are keeping uh, high-speed rail from achieving the speed and the levels of safety um, and the affordability that we would like to see with long distance travel. And that is, you know, the idea of managing friction uh, and the idea of managing air resistance. And so 
Um, the VAC train concept, which is sort of like the underlying idea behind um, pneumatic based rail, uh, theoretically eliminates those issues. Okay, cool. So we have, I know Virgin has a project. So does Tesla. Are there any other players? Both of the main players in the space right now are using passive magnetic levitation. And so you have this basically partly evacuated tube. And so like, you know, in, in theory, like a vac train concept or a pneumatic tube would have a completely airless environment. But uh, when you're looking at really long distances, which is, you know, Hyperloop is looking to travel hundreds of miles uh, at the very minimum. Uh, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to have a fully airless tube. And so the solution is to basically make it partially um, evacuated or partially airless. Um, and so then uh, the magnetic levitation would basically just ensure that the train remains suspended in the air and, and obviously that it never comes into contact with um, the tube or sort of any uh, objects in the in the tunnel. That's so interesting because one of the real problems that would happen in the pneumatic tube mail was that um, the tubes would have to be oiled regularly in order for the canisters to be able to fly smoothly. And then when the mail uh, canisters sometimes would accidentally open because they weren't closed properly, everything would just turn black and there'd be like mail stuck in the tube and would have to be like basically pushed out by the next canister. And so yeah. like mail would just come flying out of the tubes and be full of grease. And, and that's totally fine for mail or <laughs> inanimate <laughs> objects. But obviously when you have a train full of human beings, uh, the stakes are infinitely higher. And so, yeah, we want to make sure that there's no, that we don't need to, <laughs> that they don't need to uh, oil the tubes or obviously they don't get in a situation where the train shoots out of the tunnel because um, <laughs> that would be disastrous. Right. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. This You're is welcome. super exciting. The pneumatic tube mail system underground in New York City is mostly gone, replaced time and time again by telecommunications and other infrastructure. But the technology itself has persevered and can be found in businesses and institutions all around the world. You'll never see a trash collection truck at Disney World or Roosevelt Island for this very reason. The trash gets sucked underground using pneumatic tubes. Earlier this year, I went to see the Roosevelt Island pneumatic trash system in real life, and it was amazing. Residents drop their bag trash into garbage chutes in their building, like in other apartment buildings, but it then goes into the pneumatic tubes and arrives at a central collection facility which compacts the trash into shipping containers. At Disney World, the trash and recycle gets sucked in right below the garbage cans. Barcelona, Copenhagen, London, and Stockholm all operate this type of vacuum waste system in parts of their cities today. It makes you wonder whether one day New York City will expand its pneumatic trash system or resuscitate some kind of pneumatic subway. What I've discovered with my exploration into pneumatics is that unlike other technologies, it has found a way to remain relevant despite the passage of over a century. To close us out, here's Justin Rivers once again. One of the things that I kind of love about history is there, um, if you look deep enough, there are no real new ideas, but uh, we mentioned Alfred Eli Beach and Alfred Eli Beach not only had a vision for underground rapid transit, but also above ground pneumatic transit. And it was actually a very elegant, very uh, Victorian looking I always like to say on the tours, steampunky looking vision.
for what above ground uh, pneumatic transit would look like. And on the tour, I have a line that gets the biggest laugh of the tour, which is Elon Musk, eat your heart out. Uh, because this idea was being bandied around in the 1870s. So there's nothing really ever new. It's just sort of uh, improved upon maybe. <laughs> If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to, share, and rate The Secrets of New York podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find all our latest articles and tours on untappnewyork.com. Join us on the tours we mentioned in this podcast, including our underground tour of the New York City subway and The Secrets of the Brooklyn Bridge tours. If you consider yourself a hardcore New Yorker, consider joining our membership program, Untap New York Insiders, to experience our most exciting virtual and in-person events and tours. Use code JOINUS to get two months free. That's J-O-I-N-U-S. And join our community of the New York City Obsessed. Go to insiders.untapnewyork.com to sign up. The Secrets of New York podcast is produced by Untap New York. Music by my former indie rock band, Kittens of Lace. Yes, we were called Kittens of Lace. Additional music by Absent Tiger, available at Bandcamp who is now recording new projects under the moniker Sunday Scaries, Sunday with an E, also available on Bandcamp. Additional sounds by Ben Bynum and Mike Koenig. Thank you to Justin Rivers, Luke Kingma, and Lynn Heidelbog for appearing in this episode. Thank you also to Kate Asher, a mentor and former professor of mine who wrote the books The Works and The Heights for talking about the pneumatic tube mail in her class in 2009. You've sent me down this path for more than a decade. Look out for the next episode of Secrets of New York, which will be all about water towers.